This year at Northside, we've been talking about walking worthy on Sunday mornings. The current series Toby's working on is walking like Jesus, uh, going through his Sermon on the Mount. And this little part of our Sunday evening series fits right in. The whole, a lot of it does, in fact. On Sunday nights, we're working on training the Twelve, training with the Twelve, looking at what the apostles learned or maybe failed to learn uh, from Jesus as they walked with him personally for two years or a little more, perhaps. Uh, Our goal is not to uh, memorize all the apostles' actions or learning. Our goal is to play like we're the 13th apostle, and uh, if they learned it, maybe we ought to learn it. They were given the job of starting the kingdom, maintaining it, and uh, we certainly have that role also maintaining the kingdom, so maybe we can learn a few things from the apostles. We've picked a number of topics, and we're on topic number seven now, and we've got one or two more to go, I think, this year. Uh, topic seven is about Jesus and people, how he dealt with people, and it's a little broader than strictly dealing with the apostles. We'll cover them briefly. Uh, but we're assuming that the apostles watched most of this, they saw Jesus deal with everything from the multitudes to the people that hated him and every kind of person in between. And we're going to see if we can learn how Jesus dealt with them and maybe learn something about how we can deal with people. Uh, We started last week and talked about how Jesus dealt with God, how much time he spent in prayer, and uh, obviously a lot of that enabled him to deal with people the way he did. Uh, Tonight we start with my first classification of people that he dealt with, which was the multitudes, just the crowds that came to see him. And then we'll also have time to talk a little bit about his prospective followers, the one that kind of came out of that crowd and identified themselves as uh, prospective followers, perhaps. So uh, our method is to just read a lot of Scripture, and unfortunately we don't have time to read all this. Uh, I actually thought this afternoon, I thought the perfect study of this would be for me to hand this out and give you 15 minutes to read all those scriptures and then talk about what you found in there. Uh, I think it would be much more effective. It would be a lot easier, I know that, uh, for me, but I think it would be more effective for you. And I'm saying that so that you'll go home and read the rest of these. Uh, Maybe since you had your hand out already, you've already read them, but uh, read all the scriptures. I'm going to read a few of them just to kind of illustrate the big points, but uh, if you'd read all of these and then see what the overall picture you got is, hopefully it would be kind of close to the picture I got. Bear in mind, when I did this the first time, I didn't have them grouped in these handy little groups. Uh, I just read through and started building groups. So this is refined a bit from then, and I probably learned more than you will with all this divisions and headings and all that. So uh, that would be perfect, but we're going to do it the old-fashioned way, and I'll read a few of them and tell you about some of the other ones. Um, Mark chapter 6, we're going to look that up, 6.53. And these three passages here, uh, all from Mark, describe the multitudes. I don't think sometimes we get the full picture of what Jesus was dealing with and what traveling with him was like. Uh, Mark 6:53 tells a pretty good story of it. Uh, 
53, it says, When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region. They carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Uh, you read the other two passages, uh, and they talk about a house being so, he went there to eat, and it was so full of people and so crowded he couldn't even get in to eat. Uh, the second one is about there were so many people that it sounds like he was almost afraid. He, he told the apostles, he said, you get a boat ready. He said, we're going to have to get out of here. <laughs> the, the people just crushed upon him. Now, I know there were times probably when he wasn't as popular and all that, but as he traveled through Galilee teaching and preaching and his fame grew, uh, that's what it was like everywhere he went. And that makes last week's lesson about him retreating to pray even more important. Uh, but the crowds were just all over him everywhere he went. And when he stopped somewhere, the, the word spread, and more people started coming from everywhere. All right. Now, as he dealt with the multitude, the second hitting I have there is that he taught them. He did uh, speak to the crowds and, and teach them things. Uh, Luke 6 gives a, another description of the crowd and what the teaching was like. Uh, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, but Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. Now, those are the apostles he went with. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Okay, so I'll stop there for a minute. This is the night... Uh, when he picked the apostles, and the next day, after he as he had done that, then there were all these disciples still there that followed him all the time. There were some people followed him all the time, and he had picked twelve out of that to be his apostles. The disciples were there, plus people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre Sidon. They had come to hear him. They had come to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And then he started the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we kind of picture the Sermon on the Mount as this nice, calm little assembly of him goes out and sit down, and everybody sit down and be seated now, and dismiss the kids to the children's worship and all of that. No, this was like a riot almost. I mean, these people were... I mean, they brought everybody with evil spirits in them. How about that for a crowd? Yeah. And then he taught them, and it was probably a pretty wild scene. Uh, he taught them. He taught them in parables. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it says a lot of places he taught them in parables. In fact, it says one place that he didn't teach, he didn't say anything to them except in parables. And that came later in his ministry when he started. I don't think he told as many, but then he did. Um, and he told them in Matthew 15:10. He told them, "You listen and you understand." So he did spend some time teaching them, mainly about the kingdom, uh, 
about what it was going to be like. And when we get over to uh, what he taught the, the crowds, uh, which is a little different than just the multitude of followers, uh, he, he often turned to the crowd and would explain something to them. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, this is just mainly about the kingdom. I think he taught them when the multitude was there. Third thing I put down is that he had compassion on them. Matthew chapter 9 is a key verse to read. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Let's start in 35, in fact. Um, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looked at the crowds, that's what he saw. Have you ever been in a big city at rush hour walking down the street? Uh, they, they look harassed and, and helpless. They look like they're just a mob going somewhere. Yeah. That's what Jesus saw. He had compassion on them. Uh, the only two instances of physical compassion, really, except for all his healing. He did heal a lot of people. Uh, but in Mark 6, he fed 5,000 people. In Matthew 15, he fed the 4,000 people. Uh, out of all the multitudes that followed him and all that, that's not very many people that he served, that he helped physically, that he helped eat. Uh, may have been special occasions when they'd stayed way past when uh, they had planned to or something like that. But that wasn't Jesus' ministry. He wasn't there to feed everybody. Uh, he did have compassion on them. He felt sorry for them, not, not because they were hungry, uh, but because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Didn't have anybody to show them the way. So he told them about the kingdom. Okay, then the fourth one may surprise you or it may sound a little uh, odd to you, but he left them. Uh, lots of times it says that. I picked out a few of them. Mark chapter 1. Verse 35, um, this is one of his prayer times. 35 says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everybody's looking for you. You know, the crowd was still there. The crowd just was always there, it seems. Uh, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, Let's go somewhere else. Uh, let's go to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee. Okay? He, he didn't come and spend all of his time with one group of people. It would have been easy to do. Uh, with that much of a crowd any place he went, he could have had three years of ministry in one city, one town, one village. But he didn't. He said, I've spoken to them. I've told them about the kingdom. Let's go somewhere else. 
sometimes he'd leave them pretty abruptly. Matthew 8, uh, he'd just got in the boat and sailed off. Left them all there wanting more. Uh, Matthew 14 is interesting. Uh, we won't take time to look it up, but the crowd was there, and Jesus said, it's time to go. And he told the apostles, he said, you get in the boat and go, and I'll follow. And then he dismissed the crowd. I don't know how he did that or how long it took or anything else, but he told them, well, we're leaving. It's over. Uh, maybe he healed a few more people, or I don't know what he did, but he dismissed the crowd sent them on their way. Okay, now, just looking at that, if you'd have read all those verses on your own in scrambled up order, I don't know if you'd have seen the main points that I did. But dealing with multitudes, he didn't spend a lot of time with everyone. He felt he did have compassion on them, and he taught them some basic things about the kingdom, and then he went to see other multitudes. He just traveled from town to town, went from place to place to expose the greatest exposure for what the kingdom is, I think. Uh, and then the apostles were supposed to follow up on the details of it. Um, on top of that, let's expand a little bit on he taught them. He taught in parables. And at the start of his ministry, I don't think he taught in parables that much. But there comes a point where he starts to tell more of them. And I think he probably told a lot more than we've got recorded. Uh, but let's start with Mark 4. That's the passage that tells us a lot about this. Mark chapter 4. Beginning in 33. Okay, this is Mark chapter 4. If you look at your headings over your paragraphs there. The parable of the sower, a lamp on a stand, the parable of the growing seed, the parable of the mustard seed. Then verse 33 says, With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Now the way I read that, Jesus told the crowds things in parables, and they didn't understand them. I mean, if his own apostles didn't get them, you know, and that seems silly to us because we've had the parables explained to us since we were in kindergarten, so we think, well, we know what that means. Well, some of his parables are a little strange. You know, if you didn't know what we know, and besides that, you didn't know who he was or what the kingdom was or anything else. It would be a little perplexing. But it says he did that. Now, often when I'm preparing a sermon, you know, especially about a parable or something, I think, you know, this is weird. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell these people a parable, and I'm going to spend 25 minutes explaining it to them. Jesus just said the parable and then left. He expected them to either figure it out or not get it. And I think part of that was to kind of sort out the real truth seekers. Can you imagine what some of the Pharisees thought when Jesus told them a parable? I mean, they were used to all this high-level debate and 
understanding Scripture and on and on. In the middle of it, Jesus started telling them some story about a farmer. You know, all these high muckety-muck scholars probably thought, what does that mean? And that, well, they probably didn't think that. They just dismissed it. You know, uh, silly story. But the people really seeking truth said, ah, I kind of get that. That makes sense to me. Perhaps. I, I think he used that uh, as one way of finding out who was seeking the truth and who not. But I know they didn't understand it all because he had to explain it to his apostles. Now, sometimes they do seem denser than everybody else, but I, I don't think they were that dense. Uh, they just didn't understand it completely, so he'd explain it to them. Okay, so that's the multitudes. Now, out of that, or sometimes with multitudes, or sometimes elsewhere, he had run into people that I called pers- were perspective followers. Uh, not all of them were serious, not all of them ended up to be followers and all that, but Somebody that comes up and asks him a question is a prospective follower. You know, anybody that calls Know Your Bible is a prospective follower. Anybody that calls in a question or takes the correspondence course or shows up at church and uh, wants to meet me or Bill or Toby or something, they're a prospective follower. How do you deal with those people? Anybody at your workplace that knows you're a Christian um, and talks to you about it or anything about that perspective follower. Whether they talk to you or not about it, they're a perspective follower. But if they ask a question or something, they are. So how did Jesus deal with those kind of people? And we're going to go kind of fast here. First of all, the first two headings are he recognized faith and he expected faith. Now, and what we're let me give you one more tip. What we're going to find here is he treated people very differently. He didn't have a set thing that he did when somebody showed some interest in the kingdom. You know, there may be some salesman somewhere that uh, no matter who you are or what you think or anything, you ask them about their product and they got a canned pitch. Bam, here. This is what it can do for you. Jesus didn't. He treated people not just differently, but way differently. Okay, the first couple of categories, he recognized faith and he expected faith. The first one is when he was first introduced uh, to Peter and John. Let's just turn over there and read that and make sure we get this one. A little different category because they ended up being apostles, but I think it's interesting. 1 verse 35 The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said, Come, you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying, spent that day with him. Okay? Now, There's a number of stories where it says they followed him. They were followers of John the Baptist first. Then they got introduced to Jesus, and they started following him a little bit. And then later, we'll get to the verse in a minute here, where he finally called them to come follow him full time. So I think, I don't know how many weeks or months or how long it was, but they'd spend what time they had with him, maybe when the weather was bad and they couldn't fish or something, 
And then they'd go back to their job, make some money, and then when they had time, they'd go hang around with Jesus. So if you compare this to how he answered some other people that approached him as prospective followers, they're very different. I think he recognized in them a faith, a faith different from some of the other folks that ask him the same kind of question. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, we won't read it, but the centurion with the sick servant, Jesus saw in him a faith. He recognized that this guy believes I can heal. And then the second section there, Matthew 4, let's go to Matthew 4. And this is different than when Peter and Andrew and James and John followed him for that day and checked out where he was staying and sat around the fire with him maybe that night before they went home. Uh, Matthew four eighteen. Now, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, this is later, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. Well, he already knew them. We, we met them earlier here. They were casting a net under the lake for they were fishermen. Uh, Come, follow me, Jesus said. I'll make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So after he had met them and had them around for a while and recognized who they were and what they were about and all that, he said, it's time for them to follow me full time. And he went and he expected them to come. He didn't give them a big sales pitch. He said, come on, we'll make you fishers of men. And sometimes we tell that story all by itself, which is just kind of unbelievable. Somebody would walk up to a guy at work and say, come follow me, and the guy just quit and leave. Well, they were prepared for it. They'd been building up to this, and now it was time to follow him full time, and he said he expected they would. He expected a faith response. Same thing happened when he called Matthew. I don't know how much he knew about Matthew, but he expected Matthew to leave his tax booth and come with him. Okay, third one. The first thing you do is change that to Luke there to John. John four forty six to 50. Mistype there. John chapter 4. We're going to look at that one up. 446. Okay. All of these three, we may, eh, we probably won't read all of them, but Jesus was sometimes mysterious. It's the only way I knew to describe it. When I, I was going through this first time years ago, I said, okay, here he's going to talk to a prospective follower, a royal official. And let's see how he treats him and how he answers him. Okay? Uh, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him. And he begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. And Jesus said to him, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you'll never believe. That's 
I've got another section down here where I talk about being rude. That's pretty close to rude. It didn't make my rude section, but it got pretty close. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? A royal official comes up and says, my, my, uh, my son's sick, and then you can heal him. And he says, oh, you just want to see signs and wonders. That's kind of a weird response to me. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. Uh, now, maybe Jesus said some other stuff here, and John just gave us the Reader's Digest version. I don't know. But if that's all there was, I mean, put yourself in that guy's position. How would you feel? Isn't that a little mysterious? He first accuses you of just wanting to see a sign, and then he says, okay, go home. He'll be all right. Strikes me as mysterious. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him at the seventh hour. The father realized that was the exact time which Jesus said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. Okay, uh, just a strange, mysterious thing to me. Now let's go over to John chapter 3, back to John chapter 3. And when we tell the story of Nicodemus, we kind of act like we know what it all means. But if you just read through it and think of a guy like Nicodemus coming to ask Jesus what you got to do to get into the kingdom. I mean, I wouldn't explain it this way. You know, I, I'd start somewhere. I'd find out a little bit about what Nicodemus believed and all that and start somewhere. But I wouldn't do this. But Jesus did. Okay? Nicodemus came in and said, uh, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform these miracles if God weren't with him. Uh, so Jesus says, i tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. I mean, today that's kind of a popular term, and, and some people might start with that. But that's where Jesus started. And Nicodemus was confused. He talked about mysterious. He said, how can you be born again? It's not possible. You get born and you're born, you know. And Jesus said, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell me where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Okay, Now, I can preach a sermon on that paragraph and explain it to you. But if I was Nicodemus, my head would be spinning. I think, what? First, he's talking about born again, and now he's talking about the wind blowing places, and I don't know where it's coming from. I'm not getting this. This strikes me as mysterious. And Nicodemus says, again, how can this be? And he said, well, you're Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen. Still, you people don't accept our testimony. 
I mean, it's getting stranger, isn't it? All of you looking at me like you're a heretic. You can't critique Jesus like that. Well, I think there's a reason he talked like this to Nicodemus, but it is mysterious. And he starts talking about Moses lifting up the snake and the Son of Man being lifted up. But you go home and read all that whole passage there. And it's just like Jesus is trying to keep him off balance a little bit. He just jumps from one thing to another. and It's not the way I would do a home Bible study. That's all I'm saying. But it's what Jesus did. Okay? Uh, and then John 12, we won't look it up, but actually it's more mysterious than some of the others. The apostles came in and said, there are some Greeks here that want to see you. And Jesus all of a sudden started talking about when he was going to die and God speaks in the middle of it. And I mean, it's a strange little passage there with when the Greeks came to see him. So sometimes he was mysterious, I think. Uh, Luke 13, let's turn over there. He gave them very clear choices. And I think we could find a lot more in this, but Luke 13, a little story there is enough. Verse 22, let's start there. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you will say, well, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last will be first, and first will be last. Now, I know he's talking about the Jews and some of that stuff in there, but that's a pretty clear choice. He didn't beat around the bush. And they probably asked that question because they'd heard he teaches like this. Bear in mind, they thought everybody they knew and everybody in the neighborhood and everybody in the country that was a circumcised Jew and all of that, they were going to be saved. This guy was saying, not everybody's going to be saved. So they came and asked that question. Is it true that only a few people are going to be saved? He said, yeah. Father's going to slam the door. You're going to be outside wishing you were in. There's going to be people from all over the world, north, south, east, and west, that get in, and you're not going to get in. That's pretty clear. He he spoke that way to them. Next little section, he was sometimes rude, short, or impatient. That may be close to blasphemy, but I don't think so. Uh, I think that's what he really was sometimes. Uh, read the passage about the three men with the excuses, remember? They told the reason they couldn't. Their father was going to die, and they had to sell some land, and they were getting married and something. Uh, let's just look over there and see what his response was. Luke 9, we're close. 
I'm close. Won't read all their excuses, but they all came to him and had an excuse for him. And uh, Jesus replied to all of them, verse 62, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. These sound like pretty good excuses to me. I know when we teach it, we reason through and come up with reasons that he didn't think they were really serious and all that. But if I went up to Jesus and said, you know, my my father's about to die and I've got to go home and take care of that. And he said, you either put your hand to the plow or come with me or you're not fit. Pretty harsh. Luke chapter 10. Let's go over one chapter 10. 25 to 37. The uh, the expert in the law. Now you might not call him a prospective follower, but he came asking questions. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, got out of him, love your neighbor and all that. And he said, okay. And then he said, well, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus told him a parable. And when he got done and answered the question, Jesus said, go and do likewise. <coughs> He'd asked, how do I get in heaven? And he told him a story about a Samaritan. and said, go, do it. go and do likewise. Kind of short and impatient, it seems. The sinful woman who anointed him, when he replied to Simon the Pharisee, who questioned him about it, he was pretty short and rude. Uh, When the two brothers asked him to intervene in their financial dispute in Luke 12, well, let's look that up, because he was (coughs) pretty close to rude here. Luke chapter 12. Uh, Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. (coughs) Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me as judge to arbiter between you? Probably sounds rude because of the translation, Man, who told you? you But that's how he responded. I'm not going to settle that kind of thing. (coughs) Excuse me. Um. All right, John 8, let's look at this one, provocative. (coughs) John 8. A little bit of a long passage here, but if you read this whole thing, in fact, I'll just, that's your homework, go home and read from 31 down to the end of the chapter. And they start out, look how it starts. To the Jews who had believed him. This is folks that aren't just prospective followers. They're, they're, they're at least, it says they're believing in him. Maybe they aren't completely, but it says they are. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And then they go off on this big discussion about Abraham and he wears them out. I mean, he gets provocative. 
And so they ask him some more questions. He ends up telling them they're children of the devil. Yeah. These are guys, thank you. These are the guys that believed in him, it says. And at the end of the story, you get to the end of the chapter, they're ready to stone him. Now, I don't know about you, but I call that a provocative sermon. You know, when people that believe you, <laughs> believe in you come in, and you start off about one thing, and at the end of the sermon, they're ready to stone you. I'm calling it provocative. <laughs> and you read through what he said and where he went, and he, he pushed it all. He stirred them up. Okay. Last one I got is uh, the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. We'll look over there. He did not beg people to follow him. And this one's a very unusual example. Well, not unusual, just the one we know that tells a lot. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Well, I've done all those things. Jesus heard this. He said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Yeah, it's harder, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard him said, how can then anybody be saved? Jesus replied, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said, we've all left all we had to come to you and all that. Um, this guy comes and asks, and Jesus, you know, he, he had to see him as a prospective follower but he knew he had this problem, so he dropped it on him. And when the guy gave up and left, Jesus didn't try to modify it. He didn't call him back and say, hold it now. Let's talk about this. Here's what I really meant by that. Yeah. Jesus didn't do anything. He just told him in an almost kind of rude way. He starts off, what are you calling me good for? All right, so now maybe that perplexes you a little bit. That's good, because I was confused when I got through this part. After I'd read all these verses and come up with a group called Prospective Followers, I found some of them that he was just, it was almost like he was trying to run them off. Well, so I spent some time thinking about that, and I'm not sure I have the divine answer, but I, I think I came up with a reason that's, Suits me anyway. Uh, the first reason I think he acted like this to different people was I think he was kind of uh, testing human nature. He, he knew human nature. And he was kind of testing these people to see how serious they were about this. You know, when you're a little mysterious, when you're almost rude sometimes, I think it's kind of a test. I don't know if I can explain this the way I think about it, but let me try this. 
if I'm interested in something or decide I want to look something up, I might Google it or I might go to the website of the people that make it. And if I get to this website, and it's a little confusing, you know, it doesn't pop up immediately what I'm after. You've got to dig around a little bit and spend some time on it. If I'm not really interested, I'm done. You know, I'm out of there. I'm going on to something else. But if it's something I'm really after, you know, something I really want, you know, if it's something the grandkids need for Christmas or something, you know, I'll figure out that website. You know, I'll dig and try different things and go different places until I get it figured out. And I'm not, not preaching this as gospel truth, but I think that's kind of how Jesus treated prospective followers and crowds that came to him and asking questions and things like that. He'd make it a little bit mysterious, a little bit hard. And if they were serious, they'd keep digging. You know, Nicodemus kept digging. He kept saying, hold it now. I don't get that. Yeah. So tell me that. Tell me, explain that again. So I think maybe he sorted people out a little bit that way. Uh, and to go with that, the second part of why I think he did it, is I think he could read human nature real well. Now, it says someplace that he knew their hearts. You know, so I think sometimes the Holy Spirit told him, this is what that guy is thinking. But most of the time, I think he was just dealing with human nature, and he could sense, he read it real well, he could sense whether somebody was serious or not. And this is where the lesson for us comes, I think, uh, to some degree. Um, let me try to give you an example. I think I read human nature fairly well. We got a lot of people here. We get a lot of guests every week. We get a lot of questions. We get a lot of questions on Know Your Bible. And if somebody comes, and, well, let me just give you a real life example. We had somebody come one time who was actually a relative of a member here, came visiting for the first time. And after church, he was waiting for me at the back. I mean, waiting for me. And got up in my face and he said, I see you've got NIV Bibles in the pews. Why do you have NIV Bibles in the pews? Okay. I don't think you have to be a great student of human nature to know this guy's got a problem with NIV Bibles. You know, and you know how much time I spent with him? Well, we were pretty well done right there. <laughs> I said something about because we like them and wandered on off. You know, Second Timothy says, don't get involved in foolish arguments. So I made that decision. This guy wants to start a foolish argument. I don't have time for it. You know, I've got 700 people that are here, a bunch of them are visiting, and I want to talk to them, and this guy failed the test. Now, he might have gone home and said, that Tandy's rude. You know, but, but I'm telling you, I think you can tell the difference between somebody that's serious and somebody that's just agitating or whatever. Compare that to if somebody came up and asked me, now, I didn't understand what you said during that part of the sermon or uh, I was always told something or other, and they come across as sincere and really interested. 
you know, I would say, let's go down to the office and I'd spend the rest of the day with them if they wanted. And leave all of you and the visitors and everybody else out here to spare for yourself. You know, if somebody comes across as really sincere, and I think that's what Jesus did. Some people, well, look at Zacchaeus. He knew something about that guy's attitude, the way he was watching or something. He said, come on, let's go to dinner. And just left all the rest of them out there. He could tell when somebody was really serious, was really a perspective follower, I think. Uh, So that's the picture I got out of this, how he dealt with multitudes and with people that came to him and asked questions and all that. Depended on how they approached him and where they were coming from and how serious they were. Uh, I'm not saying prejudge. I'm not saying look at somebody and say, he's not worth talking to. I don't think we're that smart. Uh, and, and we get a lot of that on Know Your Bible. We get people that send us all kinds of things. And I may make a judgment after a while of dealing with them. And after seeing how Jesus dealt with people... I think I'm in the right to do that. Let me just give you one example and we'll quit here. Uh, I don't know how many weeks ago it was. I started getting questions from a guy named Daniel, is his first name, on email. And they were kind of that in-your-face confrontational kind of question. And I answered them kind of briefly, kind of uh, shortly, but I answered them very well. Uh, you know, it was the answer. It wasn't a epistle on it, but it was, here's the facts, you know. Okay. Well, he then he'd send me one back and then one back. And he always had some kind of different question. And they were a little bit odd. So he sent me one last week that, I guess i got to kind of read it to get you the gist of it. I can't summarize it. Um, God, said, God said the plan was... That, to send Jesus into the world before the world. And there had to be sin for that to be necessary. So God's plan was for Adam and Eve to eat the apple and introduce sin into the world. So how were they responsible for that since God planned it? Okay. Now that's a bunch of questions about predetermination and all kinds of things and all that. So I gave him a very brief answer about that. That, you know, God exists outside of time, and he knows what's going to happen, but that doesn't mean he makes it happen and all that. So he wrote, I got the email Friday from him about that. He said, I don't know where you got that anything can exist outside of time. I've asked you several questions, and you haven't answered any of them correctly. So I'm done asking you anything. Okay? I didn't lose any sleep. You know, uh, and some people might say, okay, this is a prospective follower. You know, you, you need to get back with him and spend another couple of hours and write him better answers. And you know, I don't think so. Yeah. And I don't think so because of how I saw Jesus treat people. I think he recognizes people's intentions and how serious or unserious they are and deals with them accordingly. Okay, we've gone too long here. The teens have an activity later, but we'll uh, be back next Sunday night with some more training the 12 and Jesus dealing with people. If you're here and need to respond to the Lord's invitation in any way, we'd be happy to help you.
I'll be here at the front. If you have anything you need from this family, come. Let's stand and sing.